Welcome back to the Auto Amateur Podcast, guys. This is James. I'm sorry it's been a couple of weeks since I've posted my last podcast, but with getting Project 996 ramped up and just, you know, life takes over, here it is, like probably almost a month after my last podcast, and uh, here I am. So I apologize for not posting as frequently as I, as I usually have been. Uh, in this episode, I'm going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, and it's driven primarily from a question that I get asked almost every day through YouTube or Instagram, which is, what's the best entry-level 911? And most people ask me for my opinion between the 996 and the 997 generations. So, yeah, let's talk about that. I love talking about this topic. We're going to talk about 996, we'll talk about 997, we'll talk about some of the differences between the two models. It's a subject that I've talked about on YouTube before with a couple of videos, um, but it's it's coming up more and more. And I think part of the reason it's coming up more and more is because the prices of the 996 have been coming down. The prices of the 997, I think, have, have either bottomed out or they're starting to pick up, and and, and maybe, maybe the same is true for the 996. But those cars are relatively affordable for the car enthusiast and which one should you go for? Let's talk about it in this podcast. So let's start by playing a bit of catch up. Project 996 is going forward with a bang. My friends Pat and Steve have been coming over. We've been doing at least one afternoon a week of wrenching in my garage. Uh, if we can try and squeeze in another couple of hours here and there, you know, at the front or the back end of the weekend or one night during the week, we have been. Uh, but it's it's so exciting. One funny thing is I am getting a load of stick online with my videos because I'm doing the majority of the, the camera work and the filming and then, of course, editing the videos afterwards, etc. Pat and Steve are doing the majority of the the actual wrenching, the actual work, and uh, a lot of people have been commenting that I haven't been pulling my weight. So don't worry, my time is coming. There are a couple of jobs coming up where I'm gonna be the guy with the wrench and hopefully not the knife, and uh, I'm gonna be getting stuck into the action. But you know, it's not like I'm sitting around just twiddling my thumbs and drinking lattes while Pat and Steve are wrenching. It's, it's, it's team effort, but you know, you see the heroes on the screen and, and that's most certainly Steve and Pat at the moment. But so far, the job's going really well. We've inspected the car sort of top to bottom. We've identified what we think the major issues are. The biggest issue being the transmission is broken. The transmission uh, core itself actually snapped away from the engine. The bell housing that connects the transmission to the engine uh, just completely snapped all the way around. Probably caused from a defective transmission mount or something along those lines, which... Um, made the transmission vibrate and over time that vibration created the fracture in the bell housing it could be a faulty product and you know 170,000 miles worth of wear has uh, you know shaken out that particular issue and has resulted in a crack we're not sure but everything else looks fine so we got a replacement transmission on the way from LA Dismantler Sarah and the guys there big shout out to Crystal too um, have been super helpful so that transmission's on its way. Uh, so the transmission was one thing. Dropping that out of the car was just awesome to watch. And I did help a little bit, but it was it was awesome to watch Steve uh, get that on. 
um, or should I say get it off. It was just fantastic taking the bolts out, seeing how the half axles connect to it either side, watching it just slowly drop on the transmission jack that we bought for the job, um, you know, especially, and then just rolling it away from the car once it was done. That was a really fun job. But I think the transmission is the biggest issue. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, more mechanical jobs coming up, having now spent a bit of time looking at the bumpers, looking at the dents on the outside. We've just recently um, cleaned up one of the headlights. We, we need a new headlight on the passenger side, unfortunately, so we're going to have to buy that. Um, but you can find those salvage, so we won't have to pay retail, hopefully. Um, we have been reconditioning some of the faded black plastic trim. Uh, we started off around the bottom of the windshield. Uh, that was the most recent video that dropped on YouTube. And then now we're on to things like taking the brake calipers apart and inspecting the rotors and the pads. Chances are we'll need to replace at least the pads, maybe the rotors. Um, part of the plan uh, eventually is to repaint the car a different color from what it is today, which is silver. Uh, we're thinking about barley blue. And what we want to do is find a nice color for the calipers that will sort of go with the barley blue. And the red calipers as they, as they are today look great. But you know, we, we want to try and create a unique vision of this 996. So we're thinking about going for a burnt orange color or something along those lines. But that means we've got to strip the calipers and actually take them off the car so that we can take them into one of the shops uh, who we're going to professionally powder coat or, or paint. I think we're going to go powder coating. Um, so that's, that's a job that's coming up. Uh, we're going to replace the engine mounts. Uh, that seems to be a pretty popular topic uh, for the 996. Uh, it's not too big of a deal, uh, assuming that the hardware hasn't rusted and you've got to start cutting bolts out, etc. It's just a couple of bolts, lift up the engine, take out the mount, put in the new mount, sit the engine back down again. Uh, so that will be one of the jobs we tackle. We've got air filters to replace. Uh, eventually we'll do the oil change once we put the transmission back together. Uh, what else? The belts and the pulleys, we're going to be inspecting those. So far they actually look pretty good. Uh, the big weight off our mind though is that the IMS bearing has already been fixed. It's got the permanent oiled LNN solution, uh, which uh, is one of the more popular IMS solutions. I think that runs for around seven or eight, seven or eight hundred bucks for the parts, and then of course the labor on top of that to do it, unless you're doing it yourself. Uh, but thankfully, that was in really good condition. And at the same time of that job being done, it looks like the rear main seal has been done, which uh, you know makes sense because they're right next to each other. And when you take the transmission and the clutch apart, you get to them; they're right there. So uh, they're usually jobs that 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 sort of you know happen at the same time. But thankfully, we don't need to do anything with the IMS and the RMS. We may have to replace the clutch um, itself, the clutch disc, which isn't too big of a job now that we've got the transmission off and the parts aren't that expensive. Flywheel looks good. Um, we're going to replace the new bolts, of course. So all of this is coming along really nicely. I mean, we've been at the project now for about four weeks, I guess, maybe, maybe six weeks if you include um, sort of delivery. Uh, but it's been going really well. It's rattling along. We've got a couple of self-imposed deadlines that we're working towards. And now it's just a question of making sure that the parts arrive on time that we need and we actually you know, have the time to do the work. Getting the parts seems to be the biggest dependency. Um, we've got wheels uh, coming, which uh, should have arrived this week, but they're not going to be arriving until the 1st of July. 
which is, I think, the end of next week. So that's not too big of a deal, but we're hoping that, you know, the next part and the next part doesn't, you know, slide week to week. The first self-imposed deadline is the end of July. I think it's the 27th. We've got our appointment with a local body shop, um, Addo's Body Shop in Bloomington, Minnesota. They're going to be respraying the car for us, and we're going for the works. We're not just respraying the exterior. We're doing under the front hood, you know, under the rear deck lid. We're doing the door jams. Essentially, anything that is silver today will be the new color. And we're going for, you know, top grade paint. We're going for um, the seal, um, the, uh, the the clear coat that Porsche uses. We're going, you know, all out to make sure that this paint job is what any Porsche buyer would want. And it's a paint job that's going to look spectacular. It's going to wear really well and it's going to last a long time. But that means we've got to get the car operable by the time the end of July comes along. Otherwise, we're going to be manually pushing and pulling that car on and off a truck <laughs> to get it to the paint shop. And we don't want to have to do that. Um, the other deadline that we've got is that just, you know, for fun, we said that we were going to get this car ready by Labor Day, which uh, I believe is the first weekend in September. My American calendar isn't quite at the uh, the forefront of my brain. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's usually the first weekend in September. So where are we now? We're sort of coming towards the end of June, We've probably got, you know, a healthy kind of six to eight weeks then uh, of work and sort of rallying parts together to get the job over the finish line. But it's really exciting. It's such a fun process. The one thing that worries me the most is my eldest son, Luke, who's three years old. Massive fan of superheroes, Spider-Man in particular. When we told him that we were restoring this car and we were going to fix it up and we were going to style it and... I explained it to him in a way that he would understand. He gets the concept that we're redoing this car. And he's asked me to make it look like a Spider-Man car. And every time he comes into the garage, he says, Daddy, is my Spider-Man car ready? <laughs> so um, I've got a bit of expectations management there to juggle. Now, if we, I don't know, how can, how can I pull that off? I mean, if we go for Bali Blue, Spider-Man is blue and red. So do I just need to get like a, a red cutout Spider-Man face to just put on the front of the car when he sees it so he thinks that we've got the Spider-Man car? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I'm a little bit worried about that. I don't want him to be super disappointed, but I'm sure we can, you know, we can pull something off to, to keep him happy. But that's Project 996. Uh, this coming weekend, uh, we've got a couple of things that we're doing. Like I said, we're, we're going to take the calipers apart. We've got new coil packs and coil tubes, etc. You know the spark plugs. So we're going to be redoing those. It's relatively easy now that the uh, the mufflers are off. Um, we should also have the engine mounts, so we'll probably tackle that this weekend. So I'm hoping to get at least at least one, maybe as many as two or three videos out of uh, the, the the next uh, time we get together to work on the car. So that's that's pretty awesome. So. That's Project 996. And I've got to say, um, I'm just continued to be amazed by how much support there is out there, uh, not only for Auto Amateur's Project 996, but just 996s in general. Uh, and funnily enough, just um, a few days ago, I was listening to one of Michael Bath's recent podcasts uh, 
on Michael's Porsche Cooled podcast, which I've got to say, Michael is just absolutely blowing the podcast world out of the water with his uh, Porsche Cooled podcast. Um, his content is great. He's a really interesting guy. He's got loads to talk about. His quality is of a high standard, and he's on time. You know, he gets one podcast out every week, and he's been doing it now for, I guess, six or seven months, I think. Um, I just, you know, big shout out to Michael. His content is always great. I missed the first couple of months of his podcast, and and during that time, um, he wasn't putting out too many videos, and I was getting worried that he may have lost interest in in being a content creator. Um, but you know, life takes over, and COVID came along, and Michael's several thousand miles away from where his 997 is is stored, unfortunately. So there's only so much you can do. But yeah, his podcasts are awesome. Anyway, the podcast I was listening to recently, Michael was talking about the 996 and how it's getting more focus and how it's becoming, uh, you know, it's also becoming almost, should I say, becoming a new icon from the Porsche generations. And I'm sure there are still people out there that roll their eyes and think, oh God, the 996 with the runny egg headlights and the IMS and blah, blah, blah. But you can't deny the 996 is unique. Just like every other 911 generation that has its unique style and attributes and character and driving experience, the 996 is unique. If anything, it is the most unique of the 911 models. For two reasons. One, the revolutionary change from air-cooled to water-cooled engines. Whether you agree with that, whether you were happy about that, all of the people that love the air-cooled and when water-cooled was announced was just heresy. Can't believe Porsche were going in that direction. They needed to. It made sense. They wanted more power out of the car. They wanted greater fuel efficiency. They wanted to do things with the engine and the driving experience that they couldn't do anymore with the air-cooled engines. Financially, it made sense for them. So the 996, for that reason, is revolutionary, and therefore it deserves a huge milestone and placeholder in Porsche history. And then the second is because of those damn runny egg headlights. When I first saw them, when they came out, and I saw what the 996 looked like sat alongside the 993, the last you know couple of models of the 993 that came out in the late 90s, oh my God, I honestly, I thought, Porsche, what have you done? You know, just, just terrible, terrible headlights. And, and still, I will listen and entertain arguments from friends and car enthusiasts that talk about just how bad those runny egg headlights are. But as time goes by, I think time is going to start looking more favorably, or at least the community is going to start looking more favorably on those lights because they are special, because they are different. And probably because there's a new generation of Porsche owner out there, the lads in their, and, and girls in their 20s and early 30s that want to get into Porsches, don't want to spend 50 or 60 grand or 150 grand on a brand new 911, brand new 992, or a used 991, or even some of the used 997s. But they want to drive a 991. Uh, they want to drive a 911. Well, there's the 996. You can pick them up for ten, eleven, twelve thousand dollars US. Yes, they've got high mileage. Yes, the interior is a little worn. Yes, they've seen better days. But it's still a 911. It still gives you that 911 experience. So the 996, just for that reason, 
is going to start making a comeback. In fact, I would probably say it has already started making a comeback. There are events in the UK that are dedicated to the 996. Um, Lee Sibley from Total 911 magazine has either been part of organizing those or at least attends and promotes them through Total 911 and through his YouTube and Instagram. Uh, but they're out there. And the UK is not the only place. There are groups that get together here in the US, all over Europe, that feature and promote the 996. You look at the Facebook groups, there are thousands and thousands of members of the 996 enthusiast communities on Facebook, just like there are for 997 and 991 and the other models. So the love for the 996 is out there. The naysayers are probably still out there as well, but I think their voices are diminishing or they're tired of flogging on the 996. Maybe they're even just softening up. Maybe they're dying. <laughs> I don't know. If you were in your 40s and 50s and the 90s, you're a little bit older now. I don't know. You know, time marches on, unfortunately, for all of us. Um, but I think the point is, you see just like whether it's music or whether it's fashion, whether it's architecture, fashion moves in waves. The, the, the sort of the desire, the, the, the iconography of our culture moves and lives in cycles. And so just like 80s and 90s music has been making a comeback in the past 10 years and uh, skinny jeans are hopefully on their way out for large guys like me, the 996 is coming back. So with that being said, agree with me or disagree with me, doesn't matter. Let's get on to the topic of which is the best entry level 911. And I think the first question is how much money have you got? Because we all know you can spend 10 grand to get your 911 experience, you can spend several hundred thousand dollars to get your 911 experience. I'm going to assume that the people who are looking and asking for an entry level 911 are looking to spend anywhere from 20,000 US, maybe up to 30 or 40,000 US. I'm going to just put out that sort of conservative range. So let's assume that's the, you know, the sort of parameters that we're, we're, we're talking about when we think about an entry level 911 for the people that have been asking. Well, 996s, you can pick them up for less than the bottom end of that range, as I've mentioned already. As we were looking at project cars for the 996, um, we were looking at cars that had 80, 90,000 miles, 1999 through sort of 2002, primarily the first generation of the 996 with the running egg headlights before the second generation 996 came along and didn't quite go back to the original uh, spotlight style, but they sort of moved away a little bit from the runny eggs. We were looking at sort of 10, 11, 12,000 US for those cars. Yeah, like I said, they weren't in great condition, but they were drivable and they were decent enough and you could fix them up. You could, you know, paint correct them. You could, um, you know, maybe uh, restore some of the upholstery, etc., etc. Decent 911s. Okay, decent, you know, quote unquote. Um, but, you know, what are you looking for in a 911? You're looking for a great driving experience. Well, the driving experience between the 996 and the 997 is pretty similar. And, and I say that with confidence because I've owned both. Okay, my 996 was a, a convertible and it was a C4, so it was a little heavier. 
um, it had the Tiptronic gear system or the automatic system. It was an automatic. My 997 was a C2. So it was rear wheel drive, not four wheel drive like my 996. It was a coupe, not a cabriolet. So it was just a little bit lighter and it was a manual. So, okay, it's not an apples to apples driving experience um, comparison, but the feel of the car on the road, the feel of how it handles around corners, the feel of the, um, the car sort of moving into corners and moving out of corners and what it's like when you're braking or when you're feeling the thrust of that engine behind you, whether or not you've got the four-wheel drive or the two-wheel drive system. It was very similar and, and mechanically under the hood, they're actually pretty much the same car. The first generation 997 essentially had exactly the same engine that was in the second generation 996, just with a few tweaks. I think they got a little bit more horsepower out of it. They, they overcame a couple of mechanical issues, but you're still facing the potential uh, failing of the IMS. You're still looking at potentially replacing the clutch at the same kind of mileage, the brakes at the same kind of mileage, the rear main seal at the same kind of mileage. You know, to me, the, the real differences between the the 996 and the 997 are not the driving experience, not the quality or the power of the engine. It's really the, the aesthetics. The headlights are different. The styling around the exterior is different. The rear lights are different. The deck lid is different. On the interior, the interior is very different. And to me, one of the biggest pulls of the 997 was how much better I thought the interior of the 997 looks compared to the 996. You know, a lot of the 996s now are what, coming up 20 years old? 997s are coming up about, you know, sort of 14, 15 years old, let's say, uh, maybe a little younger in cases. Um, I think the 996 has already demonstrated that its interior is not sort of standing the test of time. It looked pretty dated and pretty weird when it first came out. It hasn't aged well. I know a lot of hardcore 996 fans, even they will sort of shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, the interior is not great. The material it's made from doesn't wear that well. I have had a couple of people that push back and say that the 996, experience, uh, the 996 interior is still nice from a sports car perspective. It's still nicer than a lot of sort of mainstream mass-produced cars out there. Personally, I would disagree. I thought the interior of my C-Class Mercedes looked like a Ferrari in comparison to the interior of the 996, same kind of age, you know, range. 2003, I had a 2003 CLK. I had a 2003 Porsche. The interior of that CLK looked 10 years younger than that 996. And still today, I think the interior of that CLK looks way better 20 years later, almost 20 years later than the 996. But you look at the 997, and I think the interior of the 997 in 10 years' time, in 15 years' time, in 20 years' time, is still going to look good, assuming you kept it in good condition. It's got the straight lines. It's got the smooth finishes. It's got the sunken sort of PCM unit. Um, it's flush. The center console is much better. The, the PCM unit, even though it's dated, technically speaking, and it's not very functional, uh, you know, from a user experience perspective, it still sits there better in the dash. The instrument cluster looks better. The, the light-up display looks better. The seats are a bit better. The door panels are infinitely better. The steering wheel, I think, is better. Um, I think the 997 interior is going to stand the test of time much better than the 996. And it, 
to me it already has. Um, so if, if mechanically the cars are very similar between a, a first and second generation 996 and the first generation 997, I think the decision isn't about reliability and driving experience and the mechanics. I think the decision is about the aesthetics. Do you want something that looks a little more like the traditional Porsches did, which is the 997? Some say the 997 is like the, the modernized interior of the 964 and the 993 kind of combined, and I would agree to that with, you know, to one degree or another. Or do you want something that's a little bit more kitschy, a little bit more retro, and is, you know, for all intents and purposes, pretty unique? Well, that's the, the exterior and the interior of the 996. So I think aesthetics is going to be one of the major decision points between the first generation 997 and the 996s. And then price, same mileage, same, you know, relatively similar age. You could look at a first generation 997 from 2005 and a second generation 996 from 2003 and 2004, same color, same features, same mileage. I bet you that 997 is going to be a little bit more expensive to buy, if not, you know, 20% more expensive to buy just because of the desirability of the 997. Now, I haven't mentioned the second generation 997 yet for a couple of different reasons, and, and that's, I think, where we should go to next, because the second generation 997, uh, that came out at a time when the stock market was crashing. It was, you know, the late 2000s, moving into um, the 2010s, it was when the housing market fell apart, it's when there was a global recession, Porsche comes out with this, you know, new generation of 997, the demand just shrank away from Porsche. So the numbers of 997s that were ultimately manufactured for the second generation were a lot smaller than originally planned. And over the grand scheme of things, when you look at the growth of Porsche and you look at the number of uh, cars produced generation to generation, the 997.2 model um, wasn't produced in as many uh, variants. Uh, maybe the variants were pretty similar, but they, from a sheer volume perspective there weren't that many more produced um, so you can look at actually the the 997.2 gt3 and gt3 rs and there were, there were few of those there weren't too many of those produced buying those used now some of them are way more expensive than a 991 gt3 and that's down to the limited number of of the production run um, but let's go back to the sort of you know parameters we were talking about an entry level 99 sorry an entry level 911 between the sort of 20 and 40k mark the second generation 997 introduced a couple of different things the the biggest difference was the engine if you go for the second generation 997 no longer do you need to worry about the IMS issue that was resolved in the engine um, you got more power you got greater reliability just for that reason. Um, they also made some updates to the front fascia. You can see the running lights are a little different from the second generation 997 to the first generation 997. The taillights in the rear, for better or worse, are very different. I call the, 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 the headlights in the second gen 997 the Spider-Man headlights because they look like Spider-Man's eyes. At least they do to me. Um, I prefer the look overall of the first generation 997. And I've said many times, actually, if you could give me the engine and the transmission of the GTS second generation 997 
inside the shell of the first generation 997, I think that would pretty much be my favorite Porsche of all time. The GTS engine, beautiful, an absolutely just marvel of machinery, and the updated transmission inside that future classic, modern but retro-looking first-generation 997. That would be incredible. I would love that, but, you know, alas, unless I do it myself, you can't buy them like that. So the second-generation 997 is still holding its value pretty well, and so looking to get into that second-generation 997, mechanically it's the better choice, I think, overall, certainly from a reliability and longevity perspective. Even though IMS, you know, impacts, what, less than 5% of, of 996 and 997 owners, and even then it's the owners that let their cars sit around for six months at a time instead of driving them all the time. If you've bought a car that's been driven a lot with high mileage, chances are the IMS isn't going to affect you. The IMS will affect you in the first 20, 30, 40, 50,000 miles if you're not driving it regularly. A lot of those issues have been found relatively early on. Look at my 996 right now, it's already had the IMS issue taken care of, so you can fix it. But if you don't want to have to worry about that, if that 5% you know, kind of fallout does bug you, then think about the second generation 997, but you'll be thinking at the higher end of the spectrum there. But you get a 997 that was created um, in fewer numbers, the production volumes were lower, um, that's potentially going to help uh, it retain its value longer. If you get yourself... Um, you know, into a slightly more exotic spec of the second generation 997, you're going to be going above that 40k mark. But if you can get yourself into the 4S, if you can get yourself into the GTS, if you can get yourself into the Club Sport, which is pretty rare and ridiculously expensive, <laughs> uh, you know, you will have a car that you will keep forever and absolutely will be a future classic. I think that the sweet spot for me for the second generation 997 was that GTS model. Just absolutely beautiful car. Of course, I'd like the, the GT3, but that GTS spec, an absolute dream. So I think that basically boils it down for me. If, if you're looking to spend between 20 to 40,000, um, you are probably gonna find more availability, greater availability on the market if you're thinking about the 996 versus the first generation 997. The difference is more about look and feel and cost, frankly. Um, you can take the engine and the mechanics and the performance out of it because they're basically the same car. If you want something that's a little on newer, a more modern platform, an engine that's pretty bulletproof, an engine that you don't have to worry about things like the IMS going on you, um, if you want something that is potentially going to hold its value for longer and is a little bit more unique uh, to some degree, 996 kind of talk track about uniqueness aside, then I think the second generation 997 is what you're looking for. Now we could go on and extend the conversation to include the 991 generation. And as many of you know, I've sort of gone from the 996 to the 997 to the 991. I still own a 991, but I've also gone back to the 996 with my friends Pat and Steve to do Project 996 because I love that model so much. But that's a project car and that's a hobby. But my driving, my daily driver, if you will, is my Cayenne, I guess. I sound like an idiot now, but <laughs> my 991 is the car that I, I own to drive. Um, I am keeping that car. I love that car, but I can't bring that into, that into this conversation because the 991 is still sitting at around, I would say, at least 
42 to $45,000 for a higher mileage C2, kind of like mine. Um, generally speaking, if you're looking for anything other than a high mileage C2, you're looking at the 50s, you're looking at the 60,000 US. Uh, so I don't, I, to me, that's not an entry level 911. Um, some of you out there with bigger wallets, it probably is. Um, but I think for the majority of folks out there, and particularly the people who are coming into the Porsche market for the first time in their 20s and 30s and early 40s, um, with you know starting their careers or with family and other financial commitments around them, um, that 20 to 40k mark and the sort of the question between the 996 and the 997, I think I think that is your question. I think that's what you should be trying to answer for yourselves to get you into the 997. Personally, now having driven a number of them, I would go back to that first generation 997. That is what I would do. And I would roll the dice with the IMS because I would quite confidently say I would find one in good condition. I would take care of it. I would drive it all the time. I wouldn't worry about the IMS. That first generation 997, the look, the feel, the driving experience, the updated interior, the fact that it's a lot cheaper than the second generation 997, if I was to go back and pick another one, it would probably be the one I just sold. It would be that black first generation, 997, manual, black on tan. It just, maybe I need to buy that car back. It was a dream. It was gorgeous. It was amazing. I would definitely have one of those. If I end up getting a car that allows me to own, sorry, a garage that allows me to own a few more cars and I can stack them and rack them, I think I would definitely go back to that 997. So there it is. That's my sort of perspective on the matter. I'm sure there are people out there that have other opinions. And as ever, please hit me up in the comments below. If you're watching on Apple Podcasts, hit me up on YouTube, on Instagram. Um, this is the chat that will go on forever because there will always be people looking to get into 911s. There will always be people that turn up their noses at the 996s. And there will always be the what if kind of scenarios and is there a bad decision? And I would probably just take this one message away. There is no bad decision when it comes to buying a Porsche 911, assuming the car works and it isn't gonna fall apart on you. They are all incredible cars. It's the 911 brotherhood and sisterhood beyond anything else. Hashtag 911 brotherhood, hashtag 911 sisterhood. Whether you get into an old air-cooled or a water-cooled, the 911 experience is incredible. Every generation is slightly different, but every 911 is still incredible. So in, from, from that point of view, there is no wrong decision. Buy what you can afford, buy what you think looks good, and buy one that's in good condition. And it really doesn't matter what generation it's from. You will love it. And then, of course, there's always the next one out there waiting for you when you want to trade it in. <laughs> so, guys, this has been my uh, most recent podcast. Thanks for listening. If you followed all the way to the end... More Project 996 videos coming up. Uh, more podcasts hopefully coming up. I've got one in the works with uh, John Gados from Soul Performance Products. Um, I'm hopefully got another couple of uh, folks from the Porsche world lined up to join me on a podcast. Check out Michael Bath, Porsche Cooled. Check out Road to Redline with Lee Sibbs and uh, his friends uh, associated with Total 911 Magazine. Come back and check out Auto Amateur. Take care and I'll speak with you soon. Thanks. Bye.